Welcome to a brand new Tuesday edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Findings reported by the Wall Street Journal reveal that Instagram is toxic to young people, especially women. The Heritage Foundation's research fellow in technology policy, Kara Frederick, joins the show to explain what we really know about Instagram's influence on young people. Kara has spent years working in the tech space and even worked for Facebook, developing their global security counterterrorism analysis program. She brings a really unique insight and perspective to the subject of social media. All right, let's get to our conversation. I am so excited to welcome to Problematic Women Heritage Foundation Research Fellow in Technology Policy, Kara Frederick. Kara, thanks for being here. Of course. Anytime, Virginia. I'm so glad that we're making this happen. It's been, I think, a few months of us trying to nail down a date. So we're finally here and it's happening. Definitely. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, you work in the field of technology policy. You're a regular on Fox News talking about big tech issues. You actually help to create and lead Facebook's global security counterterrorism analysis program. You spent six years as the counterterrorism analyst at the Department of Defense. That's just like a really fast highlight of your resume. I could just keep going and going and going. Uh, But so tell me a little bit about how you got into this field. It's such a unique field of tech policy. What drew you to it? Yeah, well, it was purely accidental, as are most good things in life, I I like to think. Um, So my father was in the Marine Corps uh, for three decades. So I always wanted to follow him into the Marine Corps. So I was just fascinated with national security and, you know, how America projects power in the world. So I figured I'd do something along those lines. And when I got out of grad school, I ended up going into a three-letter agency. Not that many people had heard of it, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And it was described to me as sort of the redheaded stepchild of the intel community because nobody really knows. You know, the the CIA writes for the president mm-hmm. and DIA, we wrote and we analyzed for the warfighter. So mm-hmm. definitely not as sexy. Uh, we tried <laughs> to make it. We tried to judge it up a little bit. So I found myself there and I was really interested in human intelligence. So mm-hmm. I didn't care for the 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 bits and the bots and the bites and all the, the crazy ones and zeros. And I was kind of like, ah, I'm more of a, a Luddite when it comes to those kinds of things. Like I, I like to be athletic. I played soccer in college and afterwards. And so I wanted to sort of be the the cool girl that you saw in the movies. DIA, not really like that. <laughs> um, so I got the opportunity to, to do a rotation at the National Security Agency. Um, and I, I even told my boss, I was like, if you make me do this, I will quit. I don't want to do signals intelligence. I don't want to like do all those, you know, computer stuff. I'm not interested. I ended up going there to Fort Meade and I spent a year there on my first rotation there and I was fascinated. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, the the ability to see the fruits of your labor when you're sort of looking at a target. I was a, a target developer at DIA and later a targeter when I worked for a smaller uh, naval special warfare development group, a smaller command. Um, and so I was just fascinated by the ability to get battle space effects using your computer um, and actually wow. doing analysis with, with the technical work and, and gaining 
being a lot of technical proficiency, um, being at the the tip of the intel sphere in that regard. Um, so I ended up doing two rotations over two years to the National Security Agency, and that really whet my appetite for how to use technology to get actual real-world effects. Um, that led to three deployments in Afghanistan using technology uh, the entire time. So I was the nerd plugging away in the closet in the back. Um, that when... is like a movie character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was uh, not, not an interesting one. The other guys were doing the cool stuff, but I was the one sort of in the back uh, helping uh, orchestrate some of the things that they did, uh, which was great. And the same thing, you kind of saw who was actually pulling the strings in the Intel community. And let me tell you, it was those people behind the computers uh, doing some of those interesting things. So... I did that for a while. Um, I found it, you know, just uh, I always told people I would have I would still be at the National Security Agency if it was anywhere but Fort Meade, Maryland. <laughs> you know, it's uh, not my favorite place to, to drive to. But but I was uh, approached by somebody that I had worked with who was now working at a little place called Facebook uh, in Menlo Park, California. And they said, we need people who can do social network analysis, digital analysis, um, you know, look at the way uh, the digital digital behavior of terrorists and, and other sorts of bad guys on these digital platforms. Uh, so would you come over to Facebook and, you know, no, 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 definitely don't want to do that. Not my jam. Um, I'm really happy here. At that time, I was working for a small Naval Special Warfare Command, uh, and we were able to kind of have all the resources and just sort of be the cool kids on the block. Um, loved my job there, but she finally convinced me to, to eventually come over. So I helped create the counterterrorism analysis team for Globes security over at Facebook um, and just really started working on um, uh, surfacing high quality publicly available information to improve our platform based reactions um, and also look at some of the the threats in the physical space uh, having manifested online to um, some of the the Facebook entities all over the world. So kind of got to do sort of the same thing that I was doing, um, but for uh, a bigger corporation in the private sector. Uh, So that was kind of where I got that technical proficiency, super excited about all of that. But I also realized that my heart was still back in D.C. And Mm -hmm. there are these problems that were arising. um, And the best answers, I think that the the smartest people that were coming up with answers were still in D.C. A lot of my confreres in Silicon Valley didn't think that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for me, I never quite got it out of my system and decided, hey, maybe there are rules to be written Uh, We hadn't set the rules of the road for a lot of these emerging technologies yet, and D.C. really needed help. I perhaps uh, thought too – was too ambitious and (laughs) feeling that I could actually help, Uh, but but came came back and and figured I'd I'd start. So did tech policy for a smaller national security think tank and and then realized there were some bigger problems afoot that I think conservatives uh, needed to find better solutions for and decided to come to Heritage where it all happens. Yeah. Well, we're so glad that we – able to rope you in, course, get you in the heritage. It's such an honor to have someone with the background that you do have here and bringing that perspective, that really holistic perspective on tech policy. So if you would give us just a real fast high level 
What what is it that you're doing here at Heritage and why is big tech so important today? Yep. So I think at this point, having seen what we saw in the 2020 presidential election cycle when it comes to big tech censoring legitimate news, you look at the Hunter Biden laptop story uh, with the New York Post, Twitter, Facebook, they suppressed legitimate information. Uh, Twitter On Twitter's part, they said this was part of our – this was in violation of our hacked materials policy and we we are um, – we're therefore suppressing that information. We are not letting people click on links. We're suspending New York Post for even publishing information about this. In my mind, that was sort of a cross the Rubicon moment mm-hmm. where I was sort of like, wait a second. How do they know? And you had all those intel officials or even just regular analysts like myself come out and say, no, we believe this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. We know that a few days ago, Politico basically said, no, this was actually genuine. This was legitimate. So it was that stifling of legitimate debate. It was really cutting into the marketplace of ideas and sort of manipulating it that really raised my eyebrows and Mm -hmm. started me thinking like, what is going on here? And then it was followed in quick succession by uh, President Trump being suspended or banned from 17 different platforms in two weeks in early January. And that blew my mind. That made me think, okay, this is a problem. Like we have to get a grip on this. So I think the, the problems of big tech, especially when it comes comes to uh, the ones that face conservatives now can be summed up in in four ways. And that's conservative censorship. You know, we've seen that and suppression, um, opaque uh, content moderation decisions. So when people are suspended or banned, regular people uh, from the platforms, you don't really know. They don't always know why. Um, there's a lot of question marks there. And they're, these rules are vague and they're inconsistently enforced. Uh, there's uh, I'm glad this is catching on. But in our community, now we're like the mistakes are only going one way. And I think a good example of that is with our heritage scholar, Mike Gonzalez, where we wanted to push ads for his book and we weren't allowed to do that for a time because Mm -hmm. it was too contentious. It didn't fit under a specific Amazon policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We pushed back and they later said, ah, actually, this was human error. Mm -hmm. Those human errors only tend to go in one direction. Mm -hmm. And that is the conservative side. So in my mind, hugely problematic. And then lastly, there's a lack of transparency and genuine recourse when it comes to this. We're lucky at Heritage. We have resources. We have people who are fired up to actually fight and contest those things that Amazon does. But your average person may be running a small business on Instagram where they you know, are able to get the word out because of the art that they make or something like that. They don't have necessarily those resources. They don't know what their recourse is if they, if they put a foot wrong maybe and were all of a sudden finding themselves suspended um, and therefore couldn't, you know, make a living. So in my mind, I think those are really the the four things that um, that I'm I'm very much concerned about when it comes to big tech. And it's past time to address those issues and come up with viable, uh, technically feasible um, and acceptable policy solutions. Yeah, that's so, so critical. And I think you highlighting each of those areas, it's such a reminder of how much big tech really affects all of us, often our personal lives on a day-to-day basis. There was a really interesting piece that I want us to dive into now that came out on September 14th from the Wall Street Journal. They released a story reporting research that they obtained uh, about Facebook. Facebook owns Instagram. So we'll kind of use those Facebook and Instagram interchangeably in this conversation. So the company has been doing research for a long time on how 
Instagram actually affects its users and even more specifically how it affects young women. Facebook's own research on Instagram has concluded that Instagram's toxic for teen girls. In fact, their research shows that 32%, 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram only made them feel worse. So Kara, what is Facebook doing with this information? They're they're learning all these things about Instagram, how it impacts us. What are they doing with that? In a public way, nothing. They are still moving forward with plans to create an Instagram for children under 13 years old. So they had the information that you referenced in hand in 2019 and 2020, and even more fulsome details too. Uh, 6% of American teenage girls, when they had suicidal thoughts, they directly traced those thoughts to Instagram. So they had a lot more color to that research, um, even though that's a great 32% statistic. Um, one in three. Remember when you heard one in four on college campuses, like one in four people are victims of assault? Well, one in three of people right now are victims of Instagram when it comes to body image issues and wow. teen girls, that is. Wow. So in my mind, if, if you want to think of uh, something, uh, a data point and something that Facebook knows, one in three, they know it makes them feel worse about themselves and have body image issues or at least exactly exacerbate body image issues that already exist. So the fact that they're still going forward or at least not arresting any plans Mm -hmm. to continue with this other platform aimed at younger and younger kids, I think that sort of tells you all you need to know. Um, And I don't just want to pick on Facebook here. Uh, YouTube Kids, uh, that was created in 2015. YouTube was slapped with a $170 million fine by the FTC for collecting information on children under 13 years old without parental consent. This is in direct violation of a, a law that was passed I believe it was in 2018, the Child Online Privacy Protection Act. So they're flouting these regulations that already exist. They're sort of saying, you know, we care about one thing. That's our bottom line. Um, What I saw in these companies in the belly of the beast, I like to say, was three things they cared about most. So bottom line growth at all costs and their brand and reputation. Mm. So if you want to, you know, look at what they're doing, maybe their brand and reputation uh, should take a hit. But right now, yeah, it's a new it's in the news cycle, but it doesn't really seem to uh, stay their hands when it comes to more plans to to frankly do worse. It's something I think we need to think very seriously about in the policy world. Yeah. Well, what what responsibility does fall on a company like Instagram, Facebook, to take action, to remedy these things as we're learning that this so negatively, you know, impacts teen girls that, you know, it causes suicidal thoughts for young people. What are the steps that these tech companies should be taking uh, and how much is maybe a larger societal problem that we as individuals need to be taking steps versus these companies? Yeah, so these companies are really the prime movers when it comes to this. So I believe in individual agency. Um, I think that people have uh, they they can make their own choices. Um, I believe parents make choices for for their children sometimes in this regard too. So I don't want to absolve um, everyone of responsibility in this matter. But again, these tech companies are the prime 
paradigm movers when it comes to that. And we know that they their business models trade on our attention. Mm-hmm. It's engagement. Um, it's all when the Wall Street Journal releases expose, um, one of the articles talked about meaningful social interactions. So Facebook tweaked their algorithm in 2018, and it, it basically created um, more incendiary uh, content, and that was what was rewarded. Um, even though maybe their goal was a little different, they wanted people to talk to their friends and their family members, and uh, they were worried about the less engagement with more curated content. Um, yet it had the effect of uh, making everything worse. Um, they, we know that they know this. So when these companies understand that this is happening and the effects are insalubrious on people's psyches and their souls and whatnot, then I think they have the responsibility to at least not continue with plans to make it worse when it comes to, you know, under 13. Um, Facebook Messenger Kids is a thing that already exists on Facebook for for younger children as well. And we know that they're targeting these audiences. Um, Representative Johnson said in a big tech hearing in March that uh, giving kids these platforms is like handing them a lit cigarette and hoping they get addicted for the rest of their lives. And it's true. They they want these kids to be uh, so steeped in the online world. And now it's the metaverse that they can't disengage themselves and they're going to be using their products into perpetuity. That gives them you know m- money uh, and, and that growth factor that they're after into perpetuity as well. So their responsibility is, I say, not to target these younger audiences and if they know that these platforms are actively causing harm which we have proof that they do Mm -hmm. uh, to stop Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned the algorithm that has become uh, almost a, you know, a common household term, the algorithm, but there's still some, some mystery around it. How does it actually work? So you've, like you said, you've been inside in the belly of the beast. You've worked at Facebook. Explain a little bit more how the Instagram algorithm works and how it actually is created to keep us addicted. Yep. So all they're not all algorithms are created equal. And there are different algorithms for different platforms. There are different algorithms for different purposes. Um, if you I think a, a good example of this is uh, TikTok. Uh, so everybody knows about TikTok now. It's the thing, um, by the way, owned by uh, ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. So its parent company, ByteDance, is beholden to the laws of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so everybody, if your kids are on TikTok, it's not a good thing. You, you better make sure that they um, tread carefully because all of their information, not just their data, um, but the the leverage over their information is uh, a key vulnerability there. So uh, TikTok, 62% of Americans on TikTok are between 10 and 29. Uh, so huge, youthful user base. Uh, but the secret sauce to TikTok is their algorithm. They call it the four you algorithm, but you ask for insight into these algorithms, they're a black box. And that's part of the problem is there's no algorithmic transparency. This is something lawmakers are are trying to help um, change uh, and incentivize these companies to show the fact that, you know, what these algorithms do, what feeds into them and what's the output. Um, So you have data inputs, you have your sort of algorithmic black box, and then you have the output. So they, they tend to be 
be sort of coded differently. Um, they they work differently. Mm-hmm. YouTube's basically plays on how long you um, you watch a video, so not just how many likes or clicks, which could be inputs for other algorithms. Um, so they're all sort of different uh, when it comes to the the Facebook, uh, their Instagram algorithm, or at least we'll say actually we'll say their newsfeed algorithm. Um, so newsfeed is like a central um, uh, piece of the core platform, which is Facebook. Um, so distinct from what Instagram does, distinct from what WhatsApp does um, and their algorithms. So we'll stick with the, the algorithm for newsfeed. So in 2018, uh, Facebook, or a little before that, according to the Wall Street Journal leaked documents, um, they realized the the headshed, we'll call it at Facebook, realized that they their platform was sort of losing users that were fully engaged. So that's when they decided to change from uh, people watching videos that were curated by, um, you know, say the New York Times or curated by Fox News. Um, they wanted uh, to push things to the top of the feed that were more organic. So, so a video that your mom made of her cooking so her, you know, your child could could watch grandma cook in the yeah. kitchen or something like that. And the idea was they would reward um, different gradations of interactions with that video. Um, so there's like a point system that fed into the algorithm. So it was, I think, one point per like, um, something like five points for like an emoji reaction and 30 for or uh, commentary with uh, with more um, uh, with lively you know verbiage and and, and things like that. Yeah. So that means with that with the algorithm tweak, uh, mom's video if it got all if it got more points, then it would pop to the top of your newsfeed and it would be more prevalent. It would not be sort of um, downlisted, downranked depending on the platform, whatever they call it. Um, so it, it sort of works like that. Point systems, um, classifiers, which are automated systems, also work within them. Tube, so but the algorithm itself can be um, tweaked and refined, and um, yeah, it's different for all platforms, and it's different for different technologies too. Uh, you'll hear about facial recognition uh, technology algorithms and things like that. So uh, a lot involved, but but yeah, that's a, sort of a a rundown of two of the major platforms and and how their algorithms work. Yeah, that's at helpful. a very rudimentary level. Yeah, no, <laughs> not, wow, not like, technical. There, at all. We could probably do a whole podcast just <laughs> yeah. talking about the algorithms because that is complex. There's obviously so much involved there. But one thing for sure, they work. (laughs) They get us addicted. I'm guilty of it. I mean, just last night, I was scrolling through Instagram Reels and, you know, you're looking at the clock and you're like, okay, five more minutes and then 10 more minutes goes by. Mm -hmm. All right, I have to get off. Mm -hmm. So I know some people have been talking about, okay, should there actually be some sort of warning label on these platforms? Because now that we do know that they are so addictive, in the same way that we, you know, tell folks that, uh, you know, that cigarettes are addictive, Mm -hmm. should we be telling them openly these platforms are addictive? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's an interesting concept. I actually heard it uh, for the first time a couple of days ago. Um, and that, you know, one in three formulation, maybe that's something that you could put on there. One in three teen girls, you know what I mean? Body image issues made worse when they yeah. open up Instagram. Um, you know, you've heard sunlight is the best disinfectant. More information is better than less information. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to uh, giving people more information and letting them decide what 
what to do with it. Um, I think one of the biggest problems that afflicts tech companies themselves is they have a we know what's best for you ethos. Mm -hmm. And that really informs their censorship of what they're calling disinformation or misinformation. It changes by the day, as we know. So um, I I don't subscribe to the notion that um, these platforms know what's best for us. So so maybe it is time for to put some um, objective labels uh, based off of maybe their own internal research. Uh, yeah. That that I think that's an interesting idea. Yeah, and would that probably be something that Congress would have to get involved with, or would that be? platforms probably on their own saying, yeah, we agree, we'll we'll add this label. Yeah, I think there's there's an opportunity for both. Okay. Um, you know, we've tried uh, self-regulation. We've <laughs> tried, hey, you guys, like, let's uh, let's regulate yourselves. Um, doesn't really appear to be working because, again, they're beholden to those three things that the uh, bottom line, the growth, the brand and reputation, those are the things that they value. So I, I do think having some sort of, of teeth uh, when it comes to incentivizing these companies to um, to change is, is something that conservatives are really getting behind. There's a lot of energy behind that on the Hill right now. Um, so I, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if something um, comes out of the, the Blackburn and the Blumenthal investigation when they said, hey, uh, we see that Facebook knew that these are harmful products and yet they're pushing them anyway. So that's a bipartisan sort of uh, look into holding these companies accountable. Um, we can try to, to make them be more transparent from within um, if they worry that much about their brand and reputation. Maybe uh, that's a small step that they can take. But in my mind, I do think that uh, that Washington is is going to have to uh, think a little harder and conservatives are going to mm-hmm. have to think a little harder about this. You yeah. know, like we don't necessarily like to um, wield power. Frankly, we don't like that. Yeah. It's not really in our constitutions. Yeah. Um, and little C constitution. Freedom. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But but I think from what we've seen in particular, this growing symbiosis between big tech and government entities when you have Jen Psaki from the podium at the White House basically saying, oh, yeah, we talk to Facebook. We are in touch with them regularly and we have these people that we don't like because they're purveyors of disinformation and we're putting our thumb on these private companies to try to take these people down and then they do it. They respond to it. There's at the state level, same thing happened with Twitter um, and the Secretary of State in California. Uh, These are agents of the state basically saying, we don't want these people on your platform because we think they're harmful. And these big tech companies complying with agents of the state, um, you know, small state and big state, too. So yeah. in my mind, I think uh, conservatives have to be very, um, uh, very aware that this is happening and not just say private companies are private companies, because right now it looks like the government is really putting their thumb on these private companies. And um, we need to think about them in that context. Yeah. Absolutely. So and so many of our listeners, I know use social media. Problematic Women has an Instagram account. I use social media. What is your advice as someone who is in the middle of this field? You're in the weeds. You know the details. You've worked at Facebook. What would you say to the 18-year-old girl, the 22-year-old girl who's like, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, that these platforms are harmful, but all my friends are on it. They're fun. They're creative. Yep. It's a great outlet. What what would you want to say to them? You know, it's really funny because um, I was uh, I found in a box uh, the other weekend, two weekends ago, 
I found my handbook, my employee handbook that I got the day that I arrived at Facebook. And I was flipping through some of the pages and I opened it and there's one image of a man um, graffitiing a wall and he's graffitiing it with the words that say, I just want to be where all my friends are. Mm -hmm. So I totally understand that impulse. But from that impulse, we see the spawn of what that is. Like if something's good, what are the fruits, right? Like that is, I think think you look at the fruits of something and then determine if that is actually good or not. Mm-hmm. The fruits, as Facebook knows, of of Instagram are toxic. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that there are there is a utility in these platforms in terms of um, getting your voice out there and uh, letting people know about the work that you're doing and whatnot. So I I I want to tell young girls to abandon these platforms altogether, uh, but I know how hard it is, uh, and you talked about how hard it is. So what I would say, um, and I've said this before, but uh, young ladies should find their worth elsewhere. Um, They should find their identities in something higher than themselves. And uh, this might be apocryphal, but Mark Twain said it, my mom said it, comparison is the death of joy. And these things are comparison machines. So you will feel worse. Uh, when you're you're scrolling, you're scrolling, and you're scrolling, it's not it, the outcomes are not good for you. So I would say, if you can put the phone down, go outside, do something good for someone else, uh, that is going to edify your soul. And because we are talking about souls here, right? Like we're not just talking about dopamine effects and uh, the molecules in your body that are that respond to likes and whatnot. We're talking about what happens deep down inside at a spiritual level and comparing yourself to human beings watching their highlight reels because that's what they are as you know you know you don't really get people's bad days necessarily Mm -hmm. um but what this comparison machine engenders is is jealousy is anger is resentment so when you sort of look on balance at at the fruits of this comparison machine and find that they're rotten i say put it down don't even start Wisdom. <laughs> Thanks, Kara. All right. Well, before we let you go, I have to ask you the question we love to ask all of our guests on this show, and that is, do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes or no? Why or why not? Yeah, that's a good question. I um, I had a professor when I was an undergrad look at me straight in the eye one time and say, are you a feminist? <laughs> and I was like, uh, uh, I don't know, because, you know, growing up a, a conservative, right? It's a dirty yeah. word. It's kind yeah. of gross. So um, what I found out was, you know, I treat people as individuals. So when you are uh, talking about uh, men, women, you know, I, I definitely think uh, sex differences are real, of course. Um, and and women have something that is inherently different than men. And men have things and gifts that are inherently different and, and purposes. And, you know, we're put on this earth for very different things, mm-hmm. clearly. Um, but uh, I think treating people as individuals is sort of my... That's my doctrine, Um, whether it be um, you put an ism at the end of it or whatever. Uh, So my professor, after I kind of gave him a clunky explanation of this, (laughs) and he was like, so you're a post-feminist. And I was like. All right, whatever that works too. All right, <laughs> so, all right. so I'm I'm an individualist. Uh, I like to treat people, take people one at a time, and I don't think you can go wrong there. I don't think you can either, Kara. Thank you for your time. Of we so appreciate you coming on. Hope to have you back on sometime. Anytime. 
Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. Heritage Explains is a weekly podcast that breaks down all the policy issues we hear about in the news at a 101 level. Hosts Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher mix in news clips and music to tell a story, but also bring in heritage experts to help break down complex issues. Heritage Explains offers quick 10 to 15 minute explainers that bring you up to speed in an entertaining way. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We even put the full episode on YouTube. And that's going to be it for this Tuesday edition of Problematic Women. Join us on Thursday for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. We will see you all on Thursday. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.